Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the Cathedral Sport Podcast, hosted by myself, Ash. Noel Bulb with me again tonight, and you're probably all wondering why, you know, where he's been. He's been so quiet and not been co-hosting with me. Well, a couple of things, really. He's been snowed under with his studies, and also he's been a very, very busy man with his own Edinburgh City Football Club podcast. He is well, I promise you. He's fighting fit, don't you worry. And you will hear his Edinburgh tone again in the coming weeks, so fear not. Bob will be back. Right, ladies and gents, I've got a guest on the show tonight. Not just any guest, a very, very special guest. I'm delighted to welcome onto the show former Premier League manager, Alan Smith. Alan, welcome to the Cathedral of Sport. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Ash, and it's lovely to be able to do this. Good to hear you. Uh, yeah, honestly, it's an, an absolute honour to have you on. Um, thanks, uh, thanks to Brian May. Um, for that one. Big shout out to you there, mate. Um, honestly, so, uh, a good friend of mine. Um, Alan. I'll go right back to the start where I go with all my guests. Um, where did you grow up? What was what was early life like? How, what was your introduction to football? Well, I grew up in Fulham. I was a mad Fulham fan and I was just born in uh, Shepherd's Bush, or sorry, a market, a North End Road market. And uh, little terraced house. Mum and dad didn't have a lot of money, but really good people. And my Saturdays, we just spent going to Fulham and I loved it, brought up in an era long before you guys of Johnny Haynes. And uh, even today, I'm a, you know, it's the first result that I look for, uh, obviously, then Crystal Palace. But Fulham was my roots. I went to school there. Uh, I wasn't academically very clever. I left school. I didn't really have any qualifications or any exams, but I just knew I wanted to get into sport. Although it later on in my life it took a, a you know a different angle than I thought it would. Yeah, um, going back to your Fulham point there, my granddad uh, was a Fulham fan. Um, that was his that was his English team anyway. Fulham. Uh, my nan's a Southend fan, but <laughs> bit of a mixture there. But yeah, um, so is that is that connection already? Um, did you play at any sort of level as as a kid growing up, Alan? Yeah, yeah, I played at. Uh, I went. To, but captain West London School was a captain of my school team. And I had a friend called Alan Hawley. He was at Brentford and I went there with him. And uh, I was sort of regular in the youth team and, and the reserve team, did quite well. Then I had a car accident, which was completely my own fault, long, long time before drinking and driving. But I'd been out and had a car accident and that just pretty much put me out for about a year. And uh, I had to have a rethink of, of what I was going to do. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Um, so did that effectively end your playing career, so to speak? And that's why you went went down the coaching path? because uh... it, it didn't end my coaching career. Somebody put me in touch with the chairman of Wimbledon Football Club who ran a property company, big one in South Ken. And he was the chairman in, in the days when we had amateur football but the players were still played all the big amateur clubs of the day Enfield, Dagen and Bishop Stalford paid their players and he would employ a majority of the players at the at the business and uh, I got a job there uh, working for him and there were several other Wimbledon players the manager Les Henley was there uh, several other players so I started to sort of he, he allowed me to do my coaching and my 
football at the same time and it was and also to work in the firm which was you know giving me an income so I'd have every afternoon off to, to do my coaching and I ended up eventually as my sort of uh, passed all my coaching exams and I ended up my coaching in night schools you know just Tuesday Thursday night but I'd, I'd followed Chelsea quite a lot and I know we were talking about this before we came on air uh, on the John Sitton uh, one you did pod and I really found that interesting because he he mentioned people like Eddie McCready, Dave Sexton, Dario Grady, and these were coaches I used to watch and I wanted to be like. So I, my first coaching job was at Wimbledon and uh, I was incredibly lucky to work for a guy called Alan Batsford who was phenomenal if you look at his record and that started me off Ash on my coaching career it's good a uh, good apprenticeship to have and also uh, around that time Wimbledon would have I know they would have been non-league then but you know that was around the start of when they started to start to push up the league so to speak I know was it the Southern League they're in at the time Alan yeah well done yeah Southern League but the manager there this Alan Batsford hard as nails Ash you know real very polite off the field, very well dressed, but oh god, in the changing room was he fiery. But and he also did. He'd been manager of Walton and Hersham before, but so but with Wimbledon, he won the league title three times, Southern League, as you said, and he also took the team to beat uh, draw up at Leeds in the FA Cup. He beat Brighton when Brian Clough was the manager. Phenomenal record. Um, but they they got voted into the football league, and quite honestly, Ron Nose was the, came in as the chairman, who I was lately to work with at Palace for ten years. But I, I forget the money. I, I forget in those days you got ten pound a week, and I thought I was better off staying at the Knight and Co, which was the firm I referred to, and try and go. So then I went from Wimbledon on to be um, manager of Dulwich Hamlet, which again was a when I look back, it was a phenomenal experience. You know, having worked at Wimbledon for two seasons and then going to Dulwich, I never thought it would prepare me for managing in the Premier League, but actually it did, Ash. I can imagine. Um, you know, it, it is a very good apprenticeship non-league, whether as you're a player, a coach or a manager. Um, it, it's sort of, in my opinion, I mean, I've never managed or coached, but from what I've heard from other people, they say you you come across, you know, like these days you get a lot of spoiled characters, I'd say. But, you know, in non-league, you know, all the characters that you've got to deal with, you know, well, then yeah. sets you in good stead, I suppose. Well, most of the guys in non-league, then and now, you know, they're not fools. They've been in the real world. They understand money. Some of them have got really good jobs. The lads at Wimbledon and Dulwich. And what I, what I really love about the Dulwich thing was my first year we won the championship or the championship in the Ishmael League. We won it by a country mile. And every one of those players today, I mean, I'm going back now to 78, 79. Every one of those players that I managed in that team, I'm friends with today. We meet up at Dulwich. Uh, there's one guy called Rod Brooks who I tried to leave out when I first went there. He he died, um, but and and was a wonderful player. But all the other lads I had there, bar none, we meet up, we have a game of golf, and I'm incredibly proud of that. The fact that 
you know, I, I went on to do things in football. But to me, all those guys are all really the same. And we go out, we mix. Uh, they still call me boss. I'm not bothered whether they do or they don't. It can be Alan, you know, but we've got that affinity between all of us. So I had four really good years of enjoying myself. And it also gave me the opportunity to to work during the day or during the mornings at night and co and earn a sort of a, a reasonable living. It's amazing that you, you still keep in contact with all these guys and the respect's still there. As you said about them, um, some of them calling you boss still and that. It's, it's incredible the the respect that people have for someone from such a young age and carry it on all the way through the rest of their life, you know? Yeah, you've just got my memory. I mean, I was 30 at the time. And these some of the guys, Ozzie Bayer and Paul Edwards, uh, Kim Connett, they're all sort of my age. And I was a pretty tough taskmaster. I mean, I used to I used to think I was a cross between Malcolm Allison and I don't know, Brian Clough is a bit embarrassing when I look back. But I had a what you know, it was a great apprenticeship. And because the truth is you can make mistakes at that level and not get found out. You know, you're not in the limelight, you're not in the big league. And Dulwich was a, a, a you know, a big club if you look up the records and I still go there today, I have an interest in it. And I think I owe that football club a lot to as I then got into the professional game more and more. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a club I know very, very well um, from where I grew up in, in South London. Um, funny enough, I, <laughs> I used to, I've been to a few Dulwich games in my time and I've also uh, been to a lot of Tooting and Mitchum games in my time, as many of people will know. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a club that, that was, it was a huge, one of the giants of non-league back then and then obviously went for a little dip and then now look 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 at the support they get now and stuff and how they've they've uh, marketed the club to people. It's it's there's a real buzz around that club now, um, fan wise again, which probably would have been the same for when you were there um, before. It sort of they went on a bit of a bit of a downward spiral for a decade or two. Yeah, well, it's funny because I when I went there, I'm mean, going back to 1978, 77. I was a high. I was on forty pound a week. Ozzy Bayram, who was my best player, was on thirty-five, and the club really worked hard to pay our wages, um, and how they did it. And I was quite hard with the committee. I had a committee of twenty. Uh, I think I'll use the word before somebody says it. I was quite arrogant. I was a coach fanatic. I went on every coaching course that Sir Bobby Robson would run, and really people who had done how. Bertie Mead, all these guys were running. I would turn up as the coach at Dulwich. You know, there were people from Everton, <laughs> Manchester United. And it's funny how my life keeps crossing over uh, in <laughs> different angles because when I became the reserve team manager of um, Crystal Palace, which was a game, a great job, and I loved it only my trade, where did we play our games? Sandy Lane to in a Mitchum. So, you know, I was sort of reverting back to non league football. And uh, when you used to get the Arsenals and the Chelsea's and the Tottenham's coming to Sandy Lane, there was no grass on the pitch. God, you should have seen it, Ash. It was a rude awakening. It was a rude awakening for them, but it wasn't for me because that was the environment I'd been brought up in. That's it, exactly. You're already used to it. And uh, what I can say to our listeners that, uh, that don't know about Sandy Lane, one of my, probably my favourite non-league ground of all time, um, what a ground it was. Such a shame it's gone now. Um, oh, but 
But, you know, did, did any of the players you coached at Dulwich go on to be a pro? I've, I've always wondered that. Uh, no, they didn't because most of them, I honestly think, and I've thought this a lot, that nearly all of them could have done. I, I had an exceptional team. They were enthusiastic. We trained three days a week. If we lost, I used to get them in on a Sunday. Um, and I think one of the reasons more didn't go on was my own selfishness. I wanted, you know, Dallas to be the best team ever. And I, when I got then into full-time professional football, I still thought those players could have made it. But we'd missed our chance by the end. They were a little bit older, the players. Um but, I, you know, I've always thought of when people like, uh, I know Crawley are in the Football League now, but when they beat a team Leeds 3-0 or I see Chorley winning, it doesn't surprise me, you know. I've been going to a lot of games recently with Steve Koppel of non-league football and their passion and the enthusiasm. I never underestimate it and I don't underestimate also the people that support it and and actually work in the background for no salary. There's no big chief exec earning £500,000 a year. It's people giving their time of their own free time. And that's why Dulwich and other clubs, by the way, um, are such great community clubs. I mean, close to me, I've got Sutton United. I've got Neil Smith at Bromley who manages it. And I really see exceptionally run clubs. Yeah, Um I'm I'm a big advocate for non-league football and fan-owned football clubs um, on on this podcast. Always have been. Actually, <laughs> funny enough, we actually banned the Premier League from our podcast not that long ago. But, um, <laughs> but we, we we do <laughs> we do we do we we do a lot of stuff with non-league and fan-owned clubs. And I I turned to non-league myself when I was about fourteen, um, and I, I just I was hooked ever since. I, I just thought. This is how football should be supported. Some of the games, okay, it's not, it's not, as, it's not as, as, as easy on the eye um, as it is as watching Man City versus Barcelona on BT Sport one night. But look, it, it, you know, it's, it's authentic, it's real, it's raw, it's, it's passionate. You know, you, you can speak to the players in the bar after the game and, you know, they don't live in gated communities. And that's what I love about it, you know. Um, but you had to leave non-league behind uh, and... Crystal Palace was your next destination, wasn't it, Alan? It was. Just going back, by the way, on that, it's quite amusing that uh, Martin Tyler, who does every Sky game on the television, every big game you can imagine, he's the actual, he's also the assistant manager at Woking. And if you go and watch Woking play, they boot the ball up there, everybody chases it. And I'm not putting it down, but it's quite funny how, you know, during the week we're on this sort of snob value of, Yes, the Premier League and these wonderful games. And then Martin, who's a friend of mine, you know, is the assistant manager in the dugout of Woking, where they're playing quite direct football. But to get back to your point, yes, I uh, Ron Nodes phoned me up and I worked briefly with at uh, Wimbledon. And uh, he said, look, I want to scrap our youth team. I want you to come and run it. He was very complimentary. And... I want you to come in. I, I, I was going to be then working with Alan Mallory, who's been one of my one of my heroes. I mean, great player for Tottenham and Fulham. And uh, I was so excited, Ash, about getting the job. You know, working for Mallory, 
working for Crystal Palace, my chance now to get in the Football League. Not that I'd been aiming for it necessarily, but I went in and then Mallory sort of gave me my first job, which was they trained in a local park. So I used to have to go around with a shovel in before training and get rid of all the dog's muck. And that sort of brought me back to reality, really, of you know what, what it was about. And all I knew is my club or our club at Dulwich was run 10 times better than Palace at that time. And uh, I felt very sorry for the players I had there. They had all youth team players that were trying to make their living and suddenly, you know, they've got no games. They're treated badly. And uh, I had to really get hold of it. And Ron had got it in his mind that he didn't want Alan Mallory running the youth or the reserve team, which I didn't agree with at the time. But now, if you look at academies, the first team manager never runs them. So that was my sort of starting point for my 10 years at, at Palace. But it was a, it was a rude awakening. And then Ron obviously wasn't getting on with Mallory. And I actually said to Mallory, look, you and Ron, you've got to sort it out. I said, Ron's a bully. I said, I suggest you go in and see him. I know him quite well. Go in and say, I'm not putting up this anymore, Chairman. I want new balls, new bibs, new cones, and I want to run it professionally. I went home. He rang me at home later. He rang. He said, oh, I went in and saw the Chairman. I said, how would you get on, Alan? He said, oh. Went in and asked for new balls, new bibs, new cones. I want to be really positive. I said, great. What happened? He said, I got the sack. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, there we were. Suddenly, I, you know, I'm at a club. I did no manager. Uh, Dave Bassett came in for a few days. This is 1984. And for whatever reason, he didn't take it. And Steve Copel came in at 28 years old. So... I'm now faced with Steve Coppel, 28, uh, bright as a button, lovely man, just packed up playing early, no experience of coaching, no experience of managing. And he's, helped, he's hoisted with me, who's been manager of Dulwich Hamlet and coach at Wimbledon, and then coaching in a night school before that. So, like, Al, we were, we were miles apart in, in terms of, you know, our backgrounds. How did how did you work that out between you? Was there did that cause a rift at the start, or or did you did you know did he pick your brains a lot? No, it didn't cause a rift. I liked him. I think he liked. Me. Well, he did like me. We're still friends now. We still talk. Um, it, we were just different, you know. I I felt I'd had that experience in non-league, which to him it didn't really. You know, he played thirty-five times for England. He was a two hundred and forty games at Man U. Very yeah. quiet. And we we had nothing as a club, Ash. We had no money. We didn't have a training ground. It was run dreadfully. The club had been in administration. And I had to start the... I mean, I say I, but we had no... I had to start the youth system from nothing. I mean, I even had to play in a couple of games and it was... That's how bad it was. Uh, Mallory actually played in a couple of games when he was the manager, which actually wasn't that great because he was about 45 by then, a few stone overweight. And even as great a player as he'd been, it didn't go well. No, we hit it off straight away, but we had a pact almost. Alan, you run the reserve and the youth team. 
and I will just concentrate on the first team. His first team coach was a very decent guy called Ian Evans. Good coach, good good guy. Played at Palace. So they pretty much ran the first team. And my job was to recruit kids into the youth team, which I loved because I, I loved coaching. I loved teaching. I, I saw the... I just didn't look for people to be good footballers. I wanted decent guys. And even if they didn't make it as footballers, I wanted them to go back into society actually being good. And by the way, all of them, Ash, bar none, and I can honestly say bar none, either are, were decent guys. Forget football for the minute. That's uh, it's an incredible story. And any, any names there, Alan, that... Uh... That you bought through at that time, any any big names that uh, the the majority would know, well, so to speak. Jimmy Carter was our first one that came through, although he left us early. He went on to Liverpool, um, but at that time I was still building it up. But as it went on, of course, without doubt, obviously, Gareth Southgate came into the reckoning. Chris Powell was our left back who went on to play at Derby, came into it. Um, you know, there are quite a few players now that have started to get on the treadmill of making it into the professional game. And I think in all during that period, we had about 100 players that went from being YTS boys, either playing at different clubs like Jamie Morelli went on to Millwall. Um, other players all went on to have decent careers, even not a balance. I mean, the two big ones I had also at that time were John Salako and Richard Shaw. Uh, who were one of our early ones. And both of those, they're quite funny, they call me dad, you know, still, because they used to come back to my house and stay and live here. Um, which again, in this day and age, you'd have to be very careful. But I, it, don't forget, in footballers in that era, Ash didn't have cars. So we played Norwich away. We wouldn't get back from Norwich till two o'clock in the morning. So, you know, you had to sort of work out how you were going to look after. So that was the start of the treadmill. And the other thing I, we, we really honed in on at Palace, again, was a non-league scene. So we took people like Andy Gray from Dulwich Hamlet, Tony Finnegan from Dulwich Hamlet, Alan Pardew from Yeovil. And we started to build up uh, Phil Barber from Aylesbury. And because of my non-league connections, and Ron Nodes, by the way, he, he'd been chairman at Southall, we managed to start picking off players from non-league who other clubs didn't really think of. It was too too snobby for them. That's amazing how you how you put together those guys from non-league, which just proves again to people that are listening into this that you know some people that might think oh non-league, I don't want to give that a try. Most I don't of the, no, nor do I. And um, a lot of these players come from non-league. We look at a recent example of Jamie Vardy. I mean, look, I mean. So you picked off all those players from non-league football, built this squad. And in 1993, you were appointed manager. And, you know, you won the first division. Mm. I think I'll just go back slightly there because the, what also happened is it, about 1989, just going back a little bit before that, uh, Steve Coppel said, look, you know, you've been my, you've been the youth team coach for now four or five years and reserve team coach. I used to have to drive the minivan, Ash. I wasn't, you know, we drive the minivan to Arsenal with a with a reserve team in it, 
to play them and the Arsenal used to look at us bailing out of this mead. We had a little bit of the crazy gang about us as well. Um, but what Steve's point was, if you don't move up to being the assistant manager, these players you're starting to bring through won't really go. So in 89, I became the assistant manager. 1990, went to the cup final against Manchester United, uh, which for me now, I'm only looking back and because I'm talking to you, you know, I'm one few years before I'm at Dulwich Hamlet, Wimbledon, suddenly I'm on the bench, assistant manager for Crystal Palace Football Club. We'd already won the Littlewoods Club Cup beating, or, or that comes beating Everton. We'd taken players from non-league like Jeff Thomas, uh, sorry, non-league from Crew Alexander, Jeff Thomas, Pemberton, Nigel Martin, we'd signed because we got beaten 9-0 at Liverpool and we paid a million pounds for him. So I was again getting experience under Steve and now he'd grown, he'd grown immensely during that period. You know, he knew what the managing was about. Um, and we had a fabulous team. We made a mistake, really, that the club didn't build on that. We sold Ian Wright and we, the other players were getting a little bit discontented because they thought we were um, unambitious. Steve resigned when we got relegated and I pleaded with him not to. I really did. I said, Steve, don't resign. We've got young players coming through. We can come back. He said, no, Alan, I've had my lot. And I think it's, you know, you do it for a year. I'd say to Ron, no, you know, give it to Alan for a year. And that's how I started as a manager. But it, I, in a way, very sad for me, Ash. I didn't really, if I go back to some of the things I've said to you earlier, I never really had it in my mind to be the manager. I was more than happy really doing what I did and getting job satisfaction. Suddenly you're the manager and you're involved in the politics of it, having to deal with certain aspects. So, yes, you're right. I'm there now the manager of Crystal Palace Football Club. So, um, was it, what, what was the fans' reaction to Steve Koppel leaving and for you taking over? I think I was quite lucky. I think it was all right. We'd, we'd been relegated. Steve cleared the path for me to take over. Our senior players wanted to leave pretty much. And I was left with a nucleus of a very good team. Nigel Martin, Andy Thorne, John Humphrey didn't leave and Eric Young. And that gave me sort of four senior players. And I then had all these youth players coming through. And I made Gareth Southgate the captain. He was 22 years old. I wanted a a freshness. I wanted somebody that I thought represented what I felt about life and football. Uh, Simon Osborne, Richard Shaw, John Salako, Chris Coleman was another great player for me. And we absolutely won that league as a counter. We just bounced straight back. I mean, I was quite driven because I thought I owed it to Steve to be driven. Uh, Ron knows that year had been away. He'd been ill and he'd been in America quite a lot and his brother ran it. So I was pretty much running the club as I wanted to. Um, the youth team was good under Dave Garland. They went on to reach the FA Youth Cup final. So the club was really buoyant when we got promoted. And it was, look, it was just a great team, Ash. You know, Chris Armstrong up front. Um, and I think any manager, any coach, no matter what they say over the over doing a pod, 
you need good players and good lads with that attitude. And I had that in abundance. I, I mean, I remember that team very well. Um, it was the sort of, that was the year 93, 94, when my nan introduced me to Southend. I was watching right. players. I was watching players like Ricky Otto and Brett Angel, yeah. Chris Powell as well, who, who come through your system. Do you know what I mean? So it was it was in the same league. Palace were in the same league that season. Yeah. So I remember I remember that team very very well. Um, especially where I grew up as well. There's a, there's a lot of Palace fans, a lot of Palace kids on my estate as well. And they, you know, um, I do remember I do remember them celebrating the promotion. Um, I remember a big flag out on someone's balcony as well. It's funny what you remember from. <laughs> I'm 34 now, and I remember that. And that's why I was what six, seven, something like that. Yeah, it's mad, it's crazy. So, um, you also won LMA Manager of the Year that year, as you said, bounced straight back up. Um, one, one question <laughs> I'm going to ask you about Eric Young, right? I watched, the, I watched the Wimbledon documentary about the Crazy Gang, fantastic documentary on BT Sport, right? Um, and they couldn't get Eric to do an interview, and they said he was the quietest guy. In the world, you didn't even know what car he drove. Is is that true, Alan? Is, is, oh, is, is... totally, totally. <laughs> he, he, he would come into training fifteen minutes before it started. He'd leave fifteen minutes before the end. Um, he never wanted to get involved in any of the banter. I don't remember him having a drink. I, all I can remember is him coming into my office uh, in my first year there. I mean, with his headband still on. And I offered him an increase in his salary and he just stood there and shook his head. I said, sit down, Eric. And he just shook his head. He didn't even say anything. And I thought, God, he's going to pick me up and throw me through the window in a minute. And he he was, he was just didn't say anything. And in the end, I ended up by giving him twice as much as uh, that I'd offered him. And then John Salako was the next one into my office and I knocked his salary back so I could balance it out. But John was really nice and easy going, as was Eric, by the way. But again, a really good player um, and a nice man. You know, he never caused a problem. Uh, I, you know, again, I think I, you know, again, I don't look back too often, but I think I owe him a little bit and Andy Thorne because they gave that team stability because we were so young. You know, the the lads that were playing, Bobby Bowery, Simon, Roger, Ricky Newman. I'm just running names off my tongue. And Gareth, 22, you know, he's, He's having the job that I've given him of looking after those senior professionals, which he did really well. Yeah, I remember. I remember that team very. Simon Roger, yeah, that's another blast from the past, and uh, with his blonde curtains. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember Simon Roger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, bounce back up at a canter, LMA Manager of the Year next season. Two two domestic cup semi finals, Alan. Yeah, it was. It. I think if again, I like. I hope I'm being honest. It really scarred me that year um, because we had a really good team. But Ron came back having been ill. And the first thing he said to me is, I'm going to knock the Holmesdale Road down. And I, I said, no, Ron, give us a couple of seasons. Don't knock the Holmesdale Road down that yet. Let's stabilise in the division. And once we've done that, we can do it. No, I'm not doing it. I'm doing it now. So we start the next season without the Holmesdale Road. And any Palace fan, any player will tell you, we needed that 12th man. We needed that Holmesdale Road. But what did we get? We get a hollow where the ball goes behind the goal, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not blaming that on the whole season, but it didn't set the right trend. Our second no. 
our second mistake was Ron says to me, I want to sign Ray Wilkins. Because if Alan, if you mess up, Ray Wilkins can take over as manager. Now, again, getting back to your John Sitton pod, who John would have trained with Ray Wilkins, he was the most decent, honourable man you could meet. And it's so tragic to me he's not alive now. He was a wonderful company, uh, modest, everything you wanted in a human being. And he came and saw me, said, Alan, I will come to you, but I won't take your job. I'll tell you that before we even start. But I'd known Ray since he was 16, training under, again, Ken Shalito, captain in Chelsea when he was 18. So Ron didn't realise the relationship I had with Ray. But in all truthfulness, he was past his best. He was 35, something like that. And he, he wasn't the sort of team we were. And we didn't sign any other players. And we needed at that stage really to sign probably at least three players to remain in that squad. So that really caused a, a rift between Ron and I from day one, you know, the Homesdale Road, not signing any players. Despite that, we went on and, uh, as you say, we, we, we got to two cup semifinals. One of them, by the way, which uh, we drew with Manchester United 2 all in the first leg and or in the first one of the cup semis. And tragically, one of our fans was stabbed and died. And it put a real blight on it. It was an awful incident. And Ron decided in his wisdom that we go to Hong Kong for six days. Now, trust me, Ash, going to Hong Kong for six days in between two cup semi-final replays with Man U is not the best thing to do. And we eventually lost the game to Man U 1-0 in very sad circumstances. And we were relegated fourth from bottom uh, on goal average because they readjusted the league. So, you know, I, I think even now thinking about it, it hurt me. You know, I thought it was so unnecessary with the team that we built up. And I should have really probably not let Ron have affected me so much that year as I did. Did, uh, obviously that's the year the, the homestead, the, the, the new stand, two-tiered stand was going to get built. Um Obviously, I, I take it that had a major effect on finances available. Is that why Ron didn't didn't want you yeah. to sign anybody? Look, there's always two sides to every story. And <clears throat> Ron did a lot of good things for Crystal Palace. And uh, I'd be the first to say it. But that, I thought that just the timing of it was right. And it did lower around coming. And in all my time at Palace, the 10 years during that period, we didn't, we never had money. And that was the point of gain of getting players through from non-league, getting through players from the youth system. But having been relegated the year before and bounced straight back, we need we did really need Ash to build upon that. But having said that, it was a fantastic season. Two cup semi-finals. We had some great games, and again, some really good players came through it. Um, Again, all of that group I'm still friendly with today. Uh, Simon Osborne, I might WhatsApp, or Bobby Bowery. Gareth Southgate, I certainly speak to once a week. Thorny, Nigel Martin. So, again, if you take it outside football, there's been a lot of good things that have, have, have come out of it. And, by the way, we got the Homesdale Road stand built. So, you have to sort of say, well, 
we're in the when I say we Crystal Palace are in the Premier League now. That stand is still there. So in the long term, Ron probably made the right decision. In the short term of my first year as the Premier, it wasn't great. It's possible we could have made that decision as well because of the Taylor report. But didn't didn't there um, yes. have to be a certain um, by a certain time once you got to the top league? Yes, I think it's by, by a certain time that you had to have a, a, an all-seater stadium. So maybe because of the timing of that, where he's sort of backed into a corner to, to make that decision, sort of had that effect on you as well, unfortunately, um, on, 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 the, on the playing pitch. Yeah, I think that's a really good comment. It, we, we could have waited another season or two, even under the Taylor report. But Ron felt, you know, I'll give him a bit of, uh, of credit here. He probably thought I was good enough coach or good enough manager whatever, he knew we had a tight bond on the pitch to get by with what we had. And the answer is, we nearly did get up because we finished fourth from bottom and we got to two semi-finals. So, look, there's always going to be a slight difference between what the manager thinks and what the chairman thinks. I was a strong personality. Ron was a strong personality. And in the end, there's going to be one winner. Um, and that's you know, is the chairman. But I never spoke to him for quite a few years after that. You know, I didn't even up until quite before he died because I I just felt we'd done it the wrong way. The way he sacked me was the wrong way. Um, but again, now I've got over that. You know, I still think it was a wonderful time. Probably got a lot to thank him for, for giving me the job in the first place. You know, because I was unknown. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you've been you've been around the club for well ten years or so before you put in manager. So you know he obviously did have the confidence, and yeah, and you you proved yourself as a number two. So next stop was was Wickham Wanderers, wasn't it, Alan? Yeah, I went I went up to Wickham, um, and again difficult because taking over from Steve Coppel was difficult enough, but taking over from Martin O'Neill, who was absolutely revered at the club, and rightly so. Um, and he, he had a unique style of management based on his experience with Brian Clough. And you don't get any greater than that. First season, good. Second season, not so good. And I, you know, again, I think hindsight's a wonderful thing. Should I have really said, look, I'll go up north, I'll move up a bit further, but Wickham was local to me or relatively local from Croydon. Um, but again, I enjoyed my time there. It was a good club, really good chairman, great people who ran it. So, you know, again, I found it a good experience. Yeah, it's uh, certainly certainly would have been a good experience, but, you know, filling Martin O'Neill's boots, was, as you said, would be, would be one tough art. <laughs> He, he took him to Wembley, got him promoted. I think it was Martin O'Neill that actually took him out of non-league into back into the football league. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I had Roy McDonough on. Um, I don't think he, he uh, sees eye to eye with Martin O'Neill, but you can't deny Martin O'Neill's uh, greatness for for Wickham Wanderers. It's you know that's that's a, that's a really tough gig for you there. I've got to admit. Um, after Wickham, Alan, sort of was this you know a bit of a boyhood dream coming to play? Um, you got to well, work with your your boyhood club. That you supported. Oh, it was fabulous. You know, and it was a good time for me in my career because, and again, I said to you earlier in the interview on, on, on this pod, Ash, 
funny how my life keeps going through spaghetti bowls. I mean, even me doing this with you because of, you know, Linda's relations. Um, you know, I end up by being at uh, Fulham and who's the manager, but to Ray Brookings. And, uh, you know, so here's somebody that... And by the way, Ray Wilkins played for me in one game at Wickham. Uh, and we lost the game 2-1. Ray played. We lost 2-1. And when he played, he only played one game for Palace and we lost 6-1 at home to Liverpool. So if you think of the marvellous career Ray Wilkins had, and a lovely man, but played for Alan Smith, played two, lost two, conceded eight, scored two. <laughs> you know, that's um, I really <laughs> tried to bring his career down. You know, he, he lost to, when he played for me at Liverpool, at, or at, against Liverpool, and then for Wickham. So then he brings me up, Ray, and says, look, Alan, um, you're the best person I know for the job. Uh, I wanted to start up our academy at, at, at Fulham. They didn't have an academy. He said, Kevin Keegan's the chief operating officer. Mohammed Fyad's um, the, the chairman come in. And it started from scratch. There was no, they had no training ground. They had no anything. And again, it was the same scenario that I'd have with Steve Koppel. Kevin Keegan said, Alan, uh, you run the whole youth team. You'll run everything from under 23 down. Ray and I will concentrate on the first team. I had to go and see Mohammed Fired. And uh, he said, he looked at one look at me, he said, uh, uh, Kevin says you are very good, but I've never heard of you. I want in my club Kevin Keegan, Ray Wilkins, Alan Smith, I do not know. So Keegan, being Keegan, put his arm around me again, Mr. Chairman. You wanted the best, I've got the best. And that was Kevin Ash. You know, suddenly you're bought in on him. You can't, you're not going to argue with somebody who talks about you like that. So I start my three years at Fulham. Got their training ground at Motspur Park, helped negotiate the purchase of that. Went about setting and building it up. Well, Kevin and Ray were trained at the Bank of England. And again, it was a, a lovely experience and uh, as good as I got. I got great job satisfaction from that. Really enjoyed it. Um, can't, can't say more about it, really. Especially to work, working at your boyhood club as well. I mean, it's every, oh, every kid's dream, isn't it? When they go, they want to play. Everyone wants to put, uh, you know, play or, or, you know, have something to do in any capacity with, their, yeah. with a and team I they grew up know, with. I let them know it was my club as well. And every player that came into the club, I gave them the history of the club. I bought the book. I gave it to them. I get Kevin to sign it. And they'd read what Craven Cottage was about from the early days of Johnny Haynes, Jimmy Langley, Tony Macedo. So they all knew, you know, I didn't try and hide that in any way. But we were quite successful. And uh, it, was a, it was a really good three years. I should have actually, Heinz, I should have definitely stuck there for another three at least. Who's who came through the academy at that time? Because I know Fulham won the league in I think it's around two thousand two thousand and one, where they absolutely stormed it with players like Louis Saha and Barry Hales, and they they absolutely stormed the league. I remember that from from when I was at school. Um, was any of them players that well, won no, the league that, that, in your academy at, at that time? They they were Kevin was mad about bringing people in. He knew, you know, he tended to. Uh, 
we, Sean Davis came through. He was our youth team captain. You know, did really well. So Sean was put in the first team immediately. I mean, one of the sad things about all of it was that Ray Wilkins got the sack while I was while I was there, and I didn't. Uh, that was a bit painful to watch. Um, but again, Kevin would always come and ask me about people from non-league, and again, getting back to my spaghetti bold life, you know, he asked me about Chris Coleman, who played for me at Palace, brought Chris into the club, who was captain for Fulham. Uh, I think everybody would say that I was responsible for bringing him in. Did really well. And again, he now then ends up as the manager of my boyhood club and did a very good job, by the way. Yeah, he definitely did. Um, Held as a legend by many Fulham fans. I had a Fulham fan um, on here as my fan guest a few weeks ago, uh, Paul McElvenner. So... um, I'll be I'll be telling him when we come off air that uh, that that you that you actually grew up as a Fulham fan because I didn't know that certainly before uh, we started this interview. So yeah, all right, he'll, he'll like that. Well, um, Chris, Chris is a larger than life character, you know. And when he was twenty years old, I signed him from Swansea, or we signed him from Swansea. Came and lived with me with uh, you know where I lived just to get him used to the area. He did so well in my when we were reverting back to our promotion year and the year before. And to see him as the manager, you know, great company, Chris, you know. Uh, if you go out for lunch with him, it's going to be three hours. That's a certainty. But <laughs> but a serious football man and, and knows the changing room. And again, I was so proud of him when he went on to do the Wales work. But just a proper bloke, quite honestly, Ash. Yeah, I, I like Chris Coleman. I've always I've always had time for for Chris Coleman. It's always come across really well in the media as well, and you know conducts himself like a gentleman, in my opinion. Um, and well, it really made my blood boil when I watched that Netflix documentary at Sunderland. He was, he was oh, walking past, yeah, yeah and then that, that bloke abused him. So I thought, how can you shout at someone like Chris Coleman? Who, who do you think you are? So Chris Coleman, Alan, absolute legend. You're, you're absolutely bang on. Um, and a proper bloke, by the way. Yeah, I can whatever, I can quite imagine. Whatever, whatever our definition is of a proper bloke, he is one. But I don't water that down from his football knowledge and being in the changing room. Yeah, um, I think uh, we've got a similarity in thinking what a, what a proper bloke would be. So uh, yeah. we'll, we'll both uh, we'll both agree on that definitely. Um, year two thousand, turn of the millennium. Um, Certain club clawed you back, though, didn't they, Alan? Yeah, to me, it was unfinished business. Um, it was first of all, it was unfinished business. Bearing in mind what we've spoken about, B, it was an enormous mistake. Um, Steve Copper was the manager of Palace at that time. They'd had a disastrous pre-season for whatever reason. They'd lost three and four nil you know, to non-league clubs. And I get a phone call out the blow from Simon Jordan saying he wants me to be the manager. Very flattering. Said he'd followed me when he was younger. Thought I was badly treated. And again, I, I did genuinely try and say, look, stick with Steve Koppel. He's a good manager. He's an iconic figure at Palace. I'll come and work as in number two. I think it will be a good combination. No, I don't want him in the club. Don't want him. He's going. Wherever happens, he's going. And wow. Steve rang me 
or I rang him, whatever way it was. And Steve said, Alan, I'm, I'm telling you as a favour, don't do it. Um, it won't work. You won't work with him and he won't work with you. He said, I know your personality. We've worked together for 10 years. But I had it in my mind that I hadn't finished my job there. Probably ego. So, you know, I've got to criticise myself for that. And I went into the club and it was not the club I'd left. It was disastrous. Um, they weren't fit. They'd been away on a pre-season to China or something. And I had two weeks then to try and sort the club out. Two weeks before our first game away, which I think was Blackburn. Uh, and I just found the whole experience not pleasant for me. I'm sure it wasn't that great for the fans. We did get to a cup semi-final against Liverpool, which we beat them in the first leg 2-1. And then we lost the second leg 5-0. But it was just hard work. And the, the chemistry, when I talk about Dulwich Hamlet and I talk about Wimbledon, and I talk, the chemistry at that stage was not right at that club. And I couldn't help that, you know. I couldn't, I, I couldn't get under the, the skin of it. And I think what was, my, uh, my yeah, sorry, Alan. So I was going to say my relationship with Simon was fiery, to say the least. I was. I, that's what I was going to actually ask you. Then I was going to ask you what was uh, Simon Jordan like? I know he's uh, he's now on Talksport and and uh, says a lot on there. <laughs> But, you know, some people like him, some people don't. It's one of those sort of Marmite characters. There's a lot of Palace fans I went to school with because um, I went to school in... I actually went to school in South Norwood, well, sort of right near right near Palace's ground. So a lot of lot of kids in my year were, were, were Palace fans and that. And um, I don't think they took to Simon Jordan very well, to be honest. But you were liked. I remember them singing Alan Smith's Red Blue Army in the class quite a lot, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, he, you know, he was... Look, he was... I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. He was 30 years old. He just sold his business for 70 million. His brother, he bought in. And he was aggressive, rude. Uh, it was just a, a, a nutritional fight, really. Um, and, I, I, you know, it, it just seemed that every day there was, a, there was a turmoil at the club that we couldn't get get involved in and um look it was hard work i was pleased we did the semi semi-final i thought that was a, a good achievement we had several good results but there was always this sort of background of aggression not so much with me funny enough i think with me he was he was fine but around the club there was a a real act of terror and you can't have that in a business, you know. You have to have a, a sort of relatively amount of smoothness, you know. Now he's on talk sport. I listen to some of it, and I think he comes across very articulate. Says a lot of things that actually he's brave enough to come out and say, and he, as he did in the in the day then. Um, but if I'm honest, we were just different two human beings on a different wavelength, quite frankly. Yeah, totally. Was, Sounds like it. I have to say also, and I'll say this. I wasn't scared of Simon. He didn't frighten me with his shouting and bullying and his brother didn't. But when you're younger and you're not earning a very good salary and you have to put up with that shouting and screaming 
um, you know, it's not a very pleasant, um, you know, uh, experience. Definitely not. Do you, is there any regrets about that second stint? Oh, definitely, because I shouldn't have done it. I was very happy at Fulham. Uh, I had a, you know, I could do as I liked there within the bounds of reason. Steve warned me. So that was, you know, from somebody I respected and I, I, I liked for him to be saying that to me. Um, and I just didn't, you know, just before I signed for the club, uh, Simon had signed Neil Ruddock, who was rightly or wrongly 17 stones. And they, you know, they had a good relationship. I mean, Neil would have been a couple of years older than Ron. Sorry, Ron Simon. And it was, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that a match. I mean, every player I had had in my coaching career, going back to Dulwich Hamlet, going back to Wimbledon, I had people who were fit, who, who, who wanted to learn, who wanted to be. Whereas Neil was 17 stone. He'd been at some great clubs. He'd had a fabulous career. But he wasn't what I was about. And for, to be fair to him, I wasn't what he was about either. You know, he he played for some great managers. But, you know, and he, he was such an influence in the club when I went there, although they'd only been there a short time, because he was Neil Ruddock. He was the man. And, uh, you know, he, we used to have such arguments, Simon and I, about me. You know, you've got to shed two stones from him. You've got to get him fit. He's not fit, it's your fault. So we went through a whole saga of uh, of events, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Um comes back to that old saying in life about not treading over old ground. And I've had I've had that myself in uh in kitchens before. I've had a when I when I was a chef, uh, I had you know, great time the first time and I, I thought, oh yeah, them lads are great, and then you go back, it's completely different, different set of lads different mentality, different owners, different bosses. And you've just, you haven't, like, you know, I'd, some of them kitchens, I didn't even last two seconds. It's like, it's not, it was what it was before. So it's, a, it's obviously the same, same thing in football, you know? So. And life. Yeah. Life, you know, but sorry yeah. attitude at that time, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. He was 30 years old. He bought the football club. He'd supported as a kid. And he said to me, Alan, look, I'm 30. I've got 70 million pounds. And I don't give a monkey. I'll say what I want, do what I want. And we go like that. And, you know, I tried to marry him with it in my mind. But he, even he made me laugh with Neil Ruddock. He, um, he said, uh, Alan, he said, the problem with you, this is Simon said to me, he said, Alan, the problem with you, you want to be one of these managers who wants to put your arm around people and talk to them. He said, that's not the way to do it. He said, it's them in the bollocks. <laughs> he got he got Neil Ruddock up into his office with me and his brother and a couple of other guys and he really laid into Ruddock and he did lay in I mean God I thought Ruddock's going to hit me in a minute but he sort of actually didn't he sort of almost broke down and said sorry Simon I've let you down you know I know I'm you know blah 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 and uh, he left in a very sorrowful state and Simon looked at me and said there you are that's the way to treat people and, you know, it was just sort of slightly alien to me because um, I never had that shouting. And it's certainly, you know, players didn't play well. I laid down the law, but I didn't sort of go. And it was a, it was a really weird 10 months, to be quite honest. And, again, I've never really 
had cause to speak to Simon too much. But I, I do listen to his programmes. Um, I do listen to some of the things he says. I have a real feeling that he gets agents about right. He gets players who don't quite perform right. But it's it's easy to say it from the power of radio. When you're in the business, um, it, it's not too difficult. Yeah, I can quite imagine. Um, sounds like he was a bit of a bit of a bully of the way he's coming across, you know. Um, I always knew he was he had a bit of an ego and he had a bit about him, you know, sort of I'm Simon Jordan and that aura around him. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't realise that he would uh, he'd have the balls to scream at Razor Ruddock the way he did. No, he did. You know I mean? By the way, he had a few other people there when he was doing it, but he did do it. Um, and by, by that, it was pretty much the way he was, you know, again, 30 years old, owned the football club, um, had set ideas on what he wanted to do. But the it didn't earn respect at that time. You know, we had young players. We were, uh, uh, there was a lot of turmoil going. I, know, I always think in a way that 10 months, if ever I was to write a book, and I wouldn't because I think some things you should keep to yourself. There's things that don't need to be said. Um, but I also think that if I could write, if I was writing a book, you know, 10 chapters would be taken up on my 10 months there because it was just, it was just a weird period of my life that I couldn't. And I felt even if I, I'd have stayed there, I wasn't comfortable with me. I think I was starting to to change a little bit in what my principles were. But let me, again, be clear, Ash, as far as I was concerned, he was pretty much all right. Um, a couple of times I went away to Spain and helped him buy his house when he was out there. Um, there were other things he would ask me to do that were way outside the manager's role. Um, and if I, I suppose, again, if I'm honest with myself, I was quite happy to, to sort of see the back of it. That was, I'd had some great times at Palace, but it wasn't the same club that I'd had for whatever reason. And I think I was forewarned and, you know, I was stupid enough to ignore the warnings. Uh, it's a shame, um, Alan, to hear that. I mean, look, I know, I know, I know the team didn't perform in the park, but it's it's a shame to hear that's you, for a club where you spent so long of, of your football in life um, to 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 end it that way. Um, not not no fault of your own, obviously. Um, it's a, it's it's a bit of a sad story, really, mate. Um, got got a myth. Um, but you know, it wasn't the end of your career. Thankfully, um, because uh, a certain club in the northeast came knocking. Well, that again was a good way for me to get a get back into football, and b work with somebody I really respected, i.e., Gareth Southgate, and c give my experience. And I went Middlesbrough had just been relegated, and Gareth rang me and said, "Look." You know, I'm finding this a bit of a strain. Can you come up and work as director of football? And I absolutely loved it. I loved the people up there. They were warm. They were friendly. I think they were a bit wet me to start with, you know, Southerner, you know, a bit of a Jack the Lad or what they thought was a Jack the Lad um, or what their thoughts of a Jack the Lad. And my are two of these, but really got it. And I understood the role. I understood my role was not to be on the touchline. It wasn't to be in the dugout. It was to be in the director's box, to deal with troublesome players, uh, 
to, to advise Gareth on players we should get in or possibly a little bit of our tactics. And we did real, or he did really well. You know, we were third in the in this table, um, really doing well. And I thought he was just starting to blossom. And they sacked him. And uh, the chairman, who was a very decent bloke, called me in and said, look, Alan, I'd like you to stay on, but I think it will be difficult. And Ash, I just couldn't bring myself to stay there. You know, I just, I just thought it was wrong. So we, we, I resigned on that evening. He got the sack. But it was a very enjoyable time. And it, it just built on the relationship I'd had with Gareth. Uh, we've always had a good relationship, either business-wise, outside of football. Um, and that's still running today or whatever. It's amazing how you've kept your loyalty to pretty much everyone from Wimbledon all the way through to the end of your sort of football career, so to speak, um, with Middlesbrough, you know, um, and you've kept you've kept all those people close. Well, I think the good, uh, um, you know, I hope I haven't said anything that isn't quite right, but, you know, you admit your failures in life. I think, you know, go, if I go back from that period, I did fall out with Ron Nodes, and I felt, I felt, I, I really fell out badly with him and I can still remember the day he sat me when he made me go around his house and he went through some long rigmarole he already told me it, three days before what he was going to do Simon Jordan I fell out with because I just didn't we were just different animals at, at that time you know perhaps I was the wrong animal let's say he wasn't um, Neil Ruddock I wouldn't really go out of my way to say hello to not because I think he's a bad person, because I don't. I think he's a, you know, I enjoy watching him on the television and I have great respect for his career at Liverpool, at Tottenham, just at that period of time. But everybody else, I can't think of anybody, and I hope I'm right, that I wouldn't, I don't have a conversation with, you know, I look at Jeff Thomas, I'll follow his tweets, I'll tweet back, you know. Um, so that, that's been quite a good lasting relationship. And even today now, you know, I'll, um, I will have spoken to Gareth during the day about something, maybe nothing to do with the England team. Might be a general matter. I see Chris Powell in Banstead, you know, we'll, we'll have a good chat. So in general terms, that's good. And I think that's, it's important for me anyway, of how I feel about it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, especially how you keep still in contact with Gareth as well and being England manager. And does he still pick your brains? Well, what little brains I've got, he's still picks. He's, and he's, bought out, <laughs> he's bought out a very nice book called Anything is Possible. Um, I'm giving it a plug, but it's a good book. And he mentions me several times in the book of some of those periods we spoke about, of how it, you know, how I don't... Well, I mean, my famous story on him, um, and I don't know whether you've heard it, Ash, but when he was about... 18, I still saw his leadership qualities. And we went and played the British Army in a game on a Wednesday afternoon. And the, had several players sulking about not wanting to play. Professional footballers don't like playing on their day off. Anyway, we go and play the British Army. We've got a really good team out. Military band when we get there. And somehow we managed to lose the game 3-0. I'm not happy. I'm absolutely going to one after the game. 
look out the window. There's Gareth Southgate going, shaking hands with everybody. So he comes in. I said, where were you? Bearing in mind, he was captain as well. He said, well, they've just invited us in for a meal, a couple of pints and uh, a drink into the officer's mess. And I said, that's very nice of you. We'll be there in 20 minutes. So I said to him, what, what do you mean 20 minutes? I said, we're a professional football club, Gareth. We get paid for doing this. I said, seven of those guys playing for the army are in the SAS. They kill people. Do you get it? I don't go around them, <laughs> picking them up and saying, oh, you're all right. We've been wounded. Anyway, that's the typical <laughs> Gareth, you know, because he is polite. He is probably, he's 18. Next day I call him in. I said, Gareth, sit down. I said, look me in the face, son. Gareth, become a travel agent because you are not going to make it as a footballer. Now get out my office. <laughs> he went out. That's that's a brilliant story. He went out, and uh, from that day, he he talks about he he went out, and you know, I, I he he mentions this in the book because the book actually is it, it, it's called Anything's Possible. Be brave, be kind, follow your dreams, and all the proceeds, by the way, are going to the Princess Trust. But he quotes this in the book because the book is actually about the inadequacies we the inadequacies we feel as young or young or old people. You know how we're not so confident as people think you are, and he yeah. he, he says it in the book. But what he also says in the book was I I said it because I cared, you know, and I did it. We really when once he closed the door in my office, I remember my eyes welling up a bit and thinking. Good God, what have I just done there? Um, so I think the legacy, in a way, of, of Palace or football is, you know, you, you shouldn't always... I was quite lucky with what I won, but I think your legacy is, you know, the people you leave or the people you try and develop and how they go on to cope with it, whether they're chefs, like they come back to what you were talking about. And I never had that at my last period at Palace. I didn't feel... I could develop anything or get where I wanted to. It wasn't just about the, the football. So, yeah, so that's my, my Gareth Southgate story. And, um, yeah, it's been good. That's uh, – but look, you said about that time at Palace, but as I said before, you've, you've still got a lot of people that you met in football around you. So you have achieved something massive. You know, they, they, they still want they, they still want to be around you. You know, so that's the respect that you got. And if you look at it, my this is my this is my way of thinking. That means more than any trophy, medal, or any you know anything material-wise. You know, you've still got these guys that have got that respect for you. You know, you play golf with still. You you, you go out still. You see at the high street. You can't you can't buy that. Do you know what I mean? You just can't buy that. I'd love to say that, you know, when I'm when I'm old. <laughs> when you start off as a coach, though, what you are doing, you want to be a teacher, you want to be a developer. And that was really pretty much as I saw myself, you know. I didn't see myself getting into management. I'm glad I did it. And I, I think I touched on relative success. But I think, you know, the players we produce, the people I worked with at Palace for those 10 years, I'm not going to name them because nobody knows who they were, but they worked there for nothing. They worked ridiculously long hours and they all had an ingredient into getting Ian Wright to our football club. 
Andy Gray, Jeff Thomas, John Pemberton, people who came from non-league, who had a whole team of people working at Mitcham that were really, you know, very special. And I'm not particularly sentimental about life. I mean, I still, you know, run businesses. I'm still involved in sport. Um, I do quite a bit with Alex Stewart, the cricketer, and who's of the same vein as Steve Coppel and Gareth. You know, he's one of those people that is immaculate in his thought and the way he goes about business. So, you know, I think I'm quite lucky in that way that to have, you know, still be able to mix with that that type of people. You know, you should never live in the past too much, right? You know, I'm enjoying doing the pod with you and it's it's, it's great. Um, but I try and look now and, and say, you know, you've had your day, that, that was it. But can you develop something or help? Especially, by the way, in this pretty crappy period, we, you know, we're, we're going through now. Yeah, it's an awful period at the moment, mate. But uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to stay positive about it myself. Um, talking about the future, it's a, it's a futuristic-ish question for you, Alan. Um, I've got a, got someone to write in a question. I've got to put it out there on, on Twitter. So that anyone want to ask Alan a question? And uh, Elliot from uh, well, from over the road from me, actually, in, in Northfield in Edinburgh. Um, his question to you is, if you come back into football, could you save... The current Celtic team, Alan. Bit of a random one for you there, but... I honestly cannot understand why they will go to Dubai. I think that whole thinking, Ash, is beyond me. We've got people who cannot get outside their own flat, who cannot get outside their Working-class people who go to Celtic, go to whatever. And if that thinking is there, and they can't see it, I have nothing new Leonard's or... In any shape or form. But if that is the thinking, I, I, I hate to think what bubble they're in. So could I get them out of it? Yes, I could actually. But I'd have to change that mentality because if any manager came and see, saw me in this day and age and said, we're going to go to Dubai for a week training, I'd have to say, what planet are you on? And then to go out and attack the press and attack the, 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 the government for putting on... No, it's, it's, it's not right. It's, it's not right. It wasn't necessary. It was incredibly costly. And I don't see what benefit. And actually, since they've been back, they haven't won a game, have they? They've drawn both. <laughs> no, they they drew with Hibs and they drew twice with Livingston. Um, but where, where I live in Scotland now, it's uh, yeah, it's caused major uproar here. And, and I, I think it was an absolute disgrace be honest and even Celtic fans fair play to them Celtic fans um to their credit of saying look our club's become so far removed from what it, it was originally for it's meant to be for the poor of the east end and the um Irish immigrants of of Glasgow you know and now we've got a load of millionaires in the boardroom that have no you know um ties to that sort of history and they just want to swan off on these trips to Dubai and and things and it's not and a lot of fans saying it's not the Celtic way and and you've got to agree with them. You've, you've just I mean, got to agree with them, I think. Neil cannot see that. If he if he held up his hands and said, look, I made a mistake. Drunk, I, you know, I could accept that. And I come back to what I said to you almost at the start of the interview. I, thought, I It's not a part of football that I don't follow. You know, I follow, if, if I, you know, I follow Dulwich Hamlet every week because I work there. And I said to you, there's all these hard-working people working 
at Bishop's Dorford, at Marine, at Chorley, who actually have got their feet on the ground. It's, the game's no different. It's a higher technique. It's a higher... But I've been there. I've been at the top and I've been, you know, in non-league. I, I think it just loses any credibility. And they're not that good. If they were that good, it would be fine. And they need to be told. It, it hurt me telling Gareth Southgate what I had to tell him. It really hurt me, Ash. But I had to say it. Whereas at Celtic, it seems that they're frightened almost to say what is the obvious. And I'm amazed that football fans put up with it. And Celtic, and I, I do watch some of the games. I don't watch all of them. But that is not the Celtic of four five years ago, is it? So they're not even in the position no. to say, well, we're a little bit elite. Um, you know, I, I think football really has to take a long, hard look at itself in this economic period. And if I see an Arsenal player earning £325,000 a week, I'm all for people being rich. I'm all for people driving big cars. But there's something incredibly wrong with that system. It needs to be looked at. And all that I've spoken about there, whether it's Gareth, Chris Armstrong, Jeff Thomas, Ian Wright. Ian Wright was the most humble of players. He works incredibly hard to get where he got. But he, he, and he had an arrogance on the field, but he had no arrogance off it. He knew he came from Brixton, Streatham. He knew his humble beginnings. Andy Gray, I still speak to. Andy's a Brixton boy, Streatham boy, and he hasn't forgotten that. And if I said to him tomorrow, we're going to go to Dubai for two weeks to have a laugh, it, it absolutely put me straight. So I, I don't understand it. So sorry, I've gone, you've triggered something in the ash. On the Celtic thing, but it's no, no, it's fine. To me, I can't get my head around it. I'm glad you mentioned Streatham there. That's Nothing my hometown. That. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. No, um, but yeah, I mean, especially when we actually spoke about this on our first ever football show on this podcast. Uh, me and my co-host Bob and we were saying at uh, saying at the time this is when Arsenal laid off. 50-odd employees, but they had someone sat on the bench for 300 grand a week. It just absolutely blew my mind of how football... This is why I'm such an advocate of fan-owned football and stuff like that now, and non-league. and Because it's just... This like this system is, is, is just going to... like John Miller from Dial Square came on. He said, it's, it's if the bubble's not already bursting, it's going to burst very, very soon. I mean, it's, it's just... It's a ticking time bomb, this system it that, needs that's it in, in place. to bring it to some sensibility... Sky television is fantastic. I, I love it. I, you know, and then it, during this lockdown, it's been a release, but it's caused a false market in in salaries and and whatever. And nobody needs. Well, I'm not talking politically here. But nobody needs to earn a hundred thousand pound a week as a salary for playing football. And you know, if you if you actually stood still and you came down from the miles. I thought about it. I always used to laugh at my milkman. I mean, he's a lovely bloke, John. He used to come down. He's a mad Palace fan, absolutely. And, you know, some days I go down to collect the milk from my drive. And I used to say, John, I've got to say how sorry I am. I said, but don't matter, John. I said, I'll go to a place a good rollicking Saturday. I was thinking of you. Now, he was on 15 grand a week, John. 364 days a week he worked. Cold, wet. He said, don't shout at him, Alan. I love them. I love them. They give me so much pleasure. And I, I used to think, <laughs> they've just 
played rubbish. You know, all the man. And I, it reminds me of getting back to the abuse. And, you know, I remember when we lost one game to Portsmouth. And I remember going in the change room and I said to all the lads, including Neil Rudder, but it wasn't just him, it was the whole guy. I said, look, I'm absolutely pissed off with you lot today. That was not the performance I expect. It's not the level I expect. Any time, I said, well, I said but look, I said, do, I'm not going to go into one now. I said, but I'll see you at 8 o'clock in the morning. We get in every time everybody else gets up in the morning, not 10.30 like you're used to. And I said, if I see, do not have one drink in that bar. I said, if I see anybody with a pint of lager in it, you are going to be fined. So anyway, they went away, 8 o'clock in the morning, they were bowling, sulking. I really laid into them because I felt just the same as I did at 10 to 5. You know, I really lost it. I had more hate now from the fans because they said, Alan, or whatever, Alan, we love our players coming in for a drink. You know, we love it when they come in and drink six pints of lager when we just lost and they tell us all about the game and they tell us about what you said. And I just think, oh, no, I, don't, I don't understand that. If somebody played as piss poor as they had, the last thing I want to do is have a drink with them. But in a way, I get it as well, do you know. <laughs> do you take on the point I'm making? I am, yeah. And I think that's what what us football fans want to revert back to. That's what we really want. You know, it's some, you know us real football fans, sometimes it's not It's not about the results. It's, it's not, you know. It's just... You want to have a beer with the players and that. You want to hear if they've had a rollicking in the dressing room. Obviously, not too much details because, you know, things things should be kept close to your but chest you as well. And perform, things that have to do some you things that... You to perform, don't you? Yeah, you, yeah, you do. And then, and then you think to yourself as well, especially with, with the way football's gone, and you, you think, you know... A day out of the football, the result really that matter that much. Obviously, it does to the management and players, but to us football fans, sometimes you think to yourself, "Yeah, I mean, where it's so sanitised nowadays Crazy. at the top level, and you just want it, you just want it, you just want it back to that standing with your mates and win, lose or draw. You know, you're all having a laugh after the game and and whatever. You know, so yeah, I'm quite I'm quite simplistic really when it no, comes I, 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 to look, <laughs> stuff we, like that. Games at Mitchum, we'd get a thousand people there, five hundred them. You have a packed in, and somebody was tweeting me in the week saying it was the best days of your life. You to come and watch your youth team in the morning, have a pie, uh, have a hot dog in Bet's Calf that we ran, and get out. And I totally get that, but I cannot understand. You know, you're so lucky to play football, and I, whatever I do agree with Simon Jordan, and it's funny now he's. I don't know how old Simon is, but he'd be 50. You know, he does have a pop at the agents. And the agents do act as a crutch for players sometimes. And they're, they're again, a little bit frightened to say to the players, you know, well, you didn't perform, you know. There's there's too many people telling them they're good. And, he, he, you know, at Celtic, because they're so in love with Celtic, there's some of those players they wouldn't know whether they were playing the Celtic, Rangers, Newcastle or Halifax, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, so slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I get that. I get that. Yeah, um, <laughs> as an example of uh, as a, a Moroccan boy that came over, and he ended up at Cowden Beef. He didn't know. Honestly, right? He uh, it's his French, fr a French Moroccan. There's a few of them are brought over, and uh, by this agent locally, right? And they 
they end up at Cowden Beef and they actually escaped training one day and 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 found oh like they thought oh Edinburgh's over the bridge yeah what am I doing in Cowden what is Cowden Beef and <laughs> and they came over the bridge and, and one of them one of them actually signed for Edinburgh City and then was never seen again after two games with a bit of a character but but yeah I mean this is this is what this is what agents do I mean these these lads didn't they didn't even know what Cowden Beef was they just they just looked around at each other one day and they're they're on the training pitch. Do you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, my, yeah, I was, just talking about a palace when I am, um, you know, under the Simon Jordan regime, we signed two players from Latvia via their agents. And the, the agent kept on saying to my scouts, so you must come out to Latvia and have a look at them. And my scouts kept on going, oh, we're going to have a look. And can, can we go back next week and have another look? And I said, yeah, go on. Oh, came back and I said, well, what do you think? Oh, we're going to have another look next weekend. Yeah, what about three weekends? And uh, when they signed, they were absolutely useless as well, by the way. But I hadn't realised that Latvia was the lap dancing place of the world, you know, where everybody went for their spag do's. So, you know, my the, the, the scouts and all were having a great time in Latvia trying to sign two players. When I was thinking, well, actually, why would you want to go to Latvia? I didn't realise it where, where every bloke went for his spag do. Oh God! <laughs> what an excuse, eh, to use to go and sign some players. I'm real picking up the thread of that. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, couple of just a couple of quick questions again from uh, just two to end with two to end the show with. Firstly, your most cherished memory from your oh, sorry three actually three quick questions. But most cherished memory, the the coach that you had or manager you had the most respect for. Um, that was that you never worked with before. So, and from your opponents, and the funniest or craziest character you ever knew. Look, I'd have to put Alex Ferguson there because uh, I was the assistant manager when we played against him in 1990, and had the, we finished three or one their bits in the replay. Had he not won that, he would have got the sack. And then, as a manager played against him when Cantona got sent off and I had to deal with that with Alex but he would be if I could have worked with somebody I, I, I really did like George Graham I thought George was really good um, and both both Scottish by the way but both hard as nails but Ferguson's just absolutely phenomenal in his management career and Kenny Dalgleish, again, who we beat in the Cup semi-final at 4-3. So I picked three Scotsmen there that I would love to have worked with. Kenny Dalgleish actually did ring me and offer me a job. And my, I, he, he rang me. My wife said to me, I've got Kenny Dalgleish on the phone. And I said, Lynn, you're taking the mick, aren't you? So you would what do you mean Kenny Dalgleish <laughs> on the phone? Me? I mean, ridiculous. What, Dulwich, Hamlet, you know, Wimbledon? Yeah. So I spoke to him. I could, honestly, Ash, I couldn't understand a word he said. He just spent, but I was so in awe. I was just going, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, Kenny, yeah, yeah. He put down the phone. Lynn <laughs> said to me, what would this house? I couldn't understand what you're saying. I'll have, to, I'll have to get back. And Ray Houghton, who was his assistant, lovely man, he's dead now, but he was a good coach, good man as well. Um, he, he rang me and said, uh, he said, you're a bit snotty, won't you? He never rang Kenny back. I said, well why, well, why was I supposed to bring him back? He said, well, he was offering you a job. 
he was at Blackburn at the time, but you never rang him back. So I couldn't understand a word he was saying. Um, so, that, that, sorry, I've, I've gone on a bit there, Ash, but those three, they would be in my respect of, of people. But I still go back to when my days in Wimbledon that Alan Batsford, in his way, in non-league football, taught me as much as I learned from all the other people that I work with. That's incredible. Um, free Scots as well. So it, it just proves that the Scots are, have always made great managers. Um, Paisley, Shankly, Busby, all, all Scotsmen. Dalgleish, well, Ferguson. Isn't another yeah. reason for that, though? They all came from very humble, you know, backgrounds. That they were actually working class men. They understood how people that, and they didn't. Pete, I think you yeah. said about yourself. They didn't complicate things, and that's not putting them down. They were very basic in what they were about, and very humble as a And they were hard. You know, George Graham was a, a very well dressed, polite man, but he was a he was a hard man. Ferguson's a hard man. Changed his players round when he was there. But I think they had a humility from their from their background, from where they came from. Do you go along with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, Ferguson went on the got an apprentice as a, as a shipbuilder on the uh, on the Clyde when he was, was it fifteen or something like that. It was really young, 14, 15, I think. And um, so he would have he would have had to meet all these big burly characters from a young age and be able to deal with them and, and know how to. And that's probably. You know what set him in good stead for it, and he played for people like East. He managed East Sterling, and and I've read his book. It's fantastic, like phenomenal read. You know, so uh, yeah, so he's he's had that sort of background as well. Where, and this is you know what makes people good man managers. We're having to deal with such like different characters and, and where you've worked as a kid, and but, you know, yeah, I, it's, I, it's, I, uh, I just sort of you you've triggered little things in my mind. I think I'm so lucky or proud or whatever word. You know, that background we talked about earlier and then suddenly we're playing Man U. I'm the manager and he's, who I'm managing against, Cantona gets sent off. I've got to go and shake hands with Alex Ferguson. Cup semi-final, you know, he's my opponent. I'm 2-1 up with a minute to go. They equalise when King steps on Southgate. You know, so many things, but he always had a, he never ever talked down to you. You know, he treated you as an equal, although my background was completely different. And I think yeah. that is, shows a lot about the man. He could have been dismissive of me, but he never was. It was a firm handshake. He looked you in the eye. You had a glass of uh, scotch or beer with him after. And he meant it. You could see he meant it. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people have said that. Um... Harry Redknapp as well. So he used to kind of have a glass of wine with him or something like that. But um, were you were you the manager then at, at, at Palace when yeah, the, yeah, the Cantona Kung yeah. Fu kick? <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's one of the most iconic moments in in uh, British football history. So it's... Because he's who he is, he just came out. What the fuck and all was wrong with that then? And I, I didn't know really what to say. You know, I, didn't, I, said, I said nothing actually. Alex said, every day occurrence in Putney High Street. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that was like, we got away with the draw that night. Um, 
See, actually, I've never known the result of that. I remember seeing it as a kid and it being all over the papers and we've, us football fans will never forget it, but I never, that's one thing that I've never known is the actual result of that game. No, and I'm quite good when it comes to results and attendances. Like, round the canton up. Mrs. Shaw was the best man, man marker in the world. We equalised. Um, but again, he was very, you know, it was a sulky, firm handshake. <laughs> looked you straight in the face. You knew he was the boss. But, you know, he came in for a drink and... You know that was that was fine by me, and I've you know I, I saw him at Wembley a couple of years, seasons ago, last year, year before, and he came over. We had a photograph done together, and he was nice enough to say, "I'll give that to my grandkids." And actually, I knew it. The only reason we were doing it was to give it to my grandkids, but it was quite, you know, it was a nice way he put it. <laughs> it's hard to see some of the memories that you've built up during your careers and. It's just mesmerising. It really is mesmerising. I'm sure our listeners will think exactly the same when they've heard this. Um, right, just a last quick question: funniest or craziest character you've you've ever met? That like it could be as it could be as the most stupidest or like crazy nutter or in the dressing room. Anybody? You know, again, <laughs> I, honestly, I've got so many. I, I I remember one that I I do, and I don't want to put him down. One of the best players I coached and managed or was involved with it was Andy Gray. He was a fabulous player. He played for England, Ash. He came from non-league. He came, he played yeah. at Dulwich. He'd been at Palace. And he would do crazy things. Like one week he trained in an overcoat all week because he was told, cold. And I just let him get away with it. Steve Cobble was saying to me, Alan, just leave him alone. And we went up, we, we went up to play Liverpool <laughs> in a game. And uh, he, we had some new Bucter track suits. And Andy came and saw me. He said, look, the players don't like the track suits. They're not good enough. We don't want to play in them. Um, you know, they're not good material. So I went and saw Steve Cobble. And Steve Cobble said, Alan, if they don't like the track suits, I'm not bothered. Just get them to turn up. We've got enough problems beating Liverpool Saturday. Let them turn up as they like. So we turn up at Anfield. Some have got Puma, Puma on, some have got Adidas on, some have got everything. And Andy Gray's like now the leader of the pack. He knows he's won the day. We look ridiculous. We turn up in everybody, <laughs> everybody in right, everybody in ridiculous tracksuits. But we beat Liverpool 2 1. <laughs> Absolutely mesmerized. Andy Gray's outstanding. I go back into the changing. I say to the kit man, where's all those 15 tracksuits in polythene? that we had here, that we bought up, the new Bucter one. He said, Andy Gray's going to put them in his car. And uh, he's driven back to London. So I got him in mind. I said, Ali, where are those tracks? He sold them. He said, Alan, he said, I, I sold them in Brixton Market. 20 quid a knock. He said, but you can go. <laughs> he said, there's 50 for you. So I said, look, Andy, you're completely out of all. I went saw Steve Copple. I said, Steve, uh, we got a nabby, man. What are we doing? He said, Alan, sit down. What would you have paid to beat Liverpool 2-1? £5,000, £10,000? I said, yeah, probably. He says, let Andy have his tracksuits. That's the way he is. And that was it. So he was one of those characters that you actually, he'd always be doing something. But if you went along with these silly themes, he was outstanding, Ash. Really good player. Really, really good player. And came from nothing. But he had a long range of shots. 
long. And even in, in his whole career, when he went to Tottenham and he went to Aston Villa, he was never the player that we had because we let him do ridiculous things like that story I've told you. But, you know, that, that you know most of the players that we had had character. They were, you know, they went in pubs, they got on buses, they went in bars, you know. The year we went, just on this one, the year we went to the cup final, 1990, every weekend of every round, we went to Tenerife. We'd get on a plane at uh, nine o'clock from Luton Airport Steve Coppel, Alan Smith, Ian Brantford was our coach. All the players, we go to Tenerife, we get there at, um, when we leave at 10, get there at one o'clock in the morning, out Tenerife for the night. We did it every round through to a cup final. And that, you know, it sounds crazy, but it was, it, it bonded people. We knew where we stood. And when we got back on Monday or Tuesday, as it was, we trained bloody hard. You know, we ran and we ran and we ran. And we were fit, but we didn't think of going to Dubai. This is a, this is on a, a you know, an easy jet flight to uh, Tenerife. You know, forty nine quid return. And there, there also wasn't a global <laughs> pandemic <laughs> going on then, it's Alan. <laughs> and by the way, there weren't mobile phones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Sorry, yeah, I've digressed, Alan. Question. <laughs> Alan, um, I've absolutely loved having you on tonight. This has been absolutely incredible picking your brains and hearing all these stories and <laughs> Andy Gray selling tracksuits in Brixton. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, the one about Southgate as well. And uh, I, do you know what? I've had, I've had so much fun doing this interview. It is, uh, words can't even describe it, mate. Honestly, it's been. It's been incredible. Thank you so much for yeah, giving me your time, um, sharing me, sharing, sharing your knowledge with me and the listeners as well. I'm sure a lot of people well, what will I appreciate quite this. It, by the way, I mean, I, I know we spoke during the week, but you know, and that, can you understand now a little, a little bit why I said I, I enjoyed the the John Sutton interview because it was very much down to earth. It was very much as that era was. And I so much related to when he was talking about yeah. bad coaching and destroying people's careers, um, uh, you know, and he, and, and very much that era was, we were very open, we were very honest. And so I quite enjoyed those pods you'd done before because they seemed to come from people, you know, A, of had interest in lives, but actually were just normal, but with, you know, their own tale to tell. You know, I was quite lucky because I was in the, I got to the upper epilands of it, but I was always still had in my back, back of my mind what I'd learned at Dulwich, what I'd learned with Batsford. And uh, I think that puts you in quite good stead. But there you go. I've really enjoyed it. Ash. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I hope you uh, continue to do some good work. I will, I'll be listening anyway. That's how bad I am, by the way. <laughs> oh. oh, thanks. No, that's, that's great. Thanks for, thanks for listening. That's even better. No, honestly, I've, I've, you know, I love doing this. And six months ago, I was just like, "What do I do in my life now?" You know, after the, you know, the chef trade went down, and it's, I thought I like, I like sport. It's my passion. I don't really care about <laughs> cooking anyway. And it's just, it's just, it's just grown arms. It's just grown arms and legs. And now I've got, I've got people like you on. And honestly, it's, just, it's, it's a dream come true. It really is. Um, guys, we'll be back soon with bulbs. Ice Hockey Story Part 2. I've also been offered the 
podcast to host a podcast by Dial Square Football Club. They had a breakaway club of Arsenal. Fans had enough. They've agreed, formed a breakaway club, fan-owned club. They've asked me to host their podcast for them and uh, I've took the offer up. So, but I'll still be doing this. Don't worry, there's some more guests I've got lined up. One, a female pro boxer uh, as well. So we're just going to have to finalise a few things there and, and hopefully she'll be on quite soon for you. We're on all the platforms, Anchor, Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts. Please give us a listen. Please subscribe to us. Please click the star button or whatever it says on your phone to do. And um, follow us on Twitter as well, at cathedral underscore sport. Please give us a retweet, like, and um, comment on, on all the podcasts I share and, and, and give us some feedback. It's always appreciated. Again, Alan, you have a lovely weekend. Uh, hope you stay safe. Um, and honestly, mate, thank you so much. It's been, it's been incredible. I'll meet you again soon. And good luck with this all, you know, fully with you, mate. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, honestly, dream come true, as I said before. Thanks for listening to the Cathedral Sport Podcast. You have a great weekend, ladies and gents. Cheers, guys.